Father in heaven, we come now to the word of God and we, uh, in some sense, tremble before it. Uh, we ask that you would speak to us, uh, that we would hear clearly, that we would not hear those things which are wrong and false and unhelpful. But Father, we would hear those things from your heart that are true. So pray that you would help me, you would help us uh, as we come to this, this word even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 12. I just want to read two verses uh, for sake of time. Hebrews in chapter 12, please. I want to read verses uh, 1 and 2. Hebrews in chapter 12. Verse 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, you know, if you've been with us for a while, that we're in the midst of this uh, uh, piece in, in the book of Hebrews, in this message from the author of Hebrews, wherein he's telling us that we're to live by faith. Now, uh, he's doing that uh, for a number of reasons, uh, most particularly because this particular group of people to whom uh, he is writing uh, is in danger, at least in his own mind. You might remember back in chapter 2, he writes to them in verse 1 like this. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So you get a sense that he sees in them a drifting, that they're not um, uh, living uh, as they had started out. They're not living by faith. They're beginning to drift. And so then he goes on, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedient, disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So he says, everything hinges on this. Don't drift. You won't escape the wrath of God. You won't escape uh, if you neglect this great salvation. So don't drift. And then in chapter 3, in verse 12, he puts it like this. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, danger, he's saying. I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to be deceived by sin. You started out by faith. I want you to continue by faith. Don't let anything interrupt that. And so he proceeds from that point on. He's already done it some by chapter 3, but he proceeds from that point on to, to tell them about Jesus, very naturally speaking. He says, to believe, you're to believe in Jesus. So let me tell you about him. He's the Son of God. He is our representative, that is, he's our great high priest, he's our substitute, he's the sacrifice who dies for us, he's the one who was raised from the dead, he's the one who's living right now, interceding for us so that he can save us completely, so we don't have anything to worry about, so trust him, that's the very point. Uh, and so he, he then moves all the way through, gets to the end of chapter 10, tells us that we're to live by faith, and then to help us understand what that means, gives us a definition about what faith is. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's saying, God has made us promises that are fulfilled in Christ. And you're to believe Him. 
although they haven't all come to fruition yet, we don't have our new bodies, we're not living on the new earth, everything that we see doesn't reflect Jesus. Sin isn't eradicated completely. But he says, I want you to trust him. So I want you to, 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 to organize your whole life around Christ. And everything that you think, and everything that you say, and everything that you do, should be governed by the fact that you believe in Him. He's central in your whole being. So I want you to live by faith. So he goes on that, that way. And then he proceeds to give us a number of illustrations about people who've lived by faith. He says, this is always the way it's been. It was this way for Abel, it was this way for Enoch, it was this way for Abraham. It goes all the way through. In fact, the one thing that commends them to us as examples is their faith, nothing else. So I want you to look at them as, as being examples of faith. And then from then he proceeds now and he says, therefore. Now what I would expect him to say at this point in chapter 12 verse 1 is, therefore, live by faith. Well, that would make sense. He's built us up to that point, therefore live by faith. But he doesn't say it quite that way, because he, he wants to give us a picture of what it means to live by faith. And so he essentially says, therefore run. The word run there is the main verb in this long sentence of verses 1 and 2. If you have a new international version, it's two sentences. If you have a New American Standard and an ESV, out of which I have read, it's one sentence. It doesn't really matter, because either way, the point is run. So he's saying, therefore, run. I want, you to, I want you to know that living by faith is like running a race. So rather than say, therefore, live by faith, I'm just going to say, therefore, run. Now, it isn't like every kind of race, because there's all kinds of races. I mean, there's sprints. And all it takes for a sprint is a burst of energy. And then very quickly, it's over. It isn't like that. You need to run with endurance. It's an endurance race. That's the kind of race that it is. It's like a marathon, or it's really like an ultra-marathon. I mean, the point of fact is, this race doesn't end till you die or Jesus comes back. So it's that kind of race. It's, it's the kind of race that, that we're never to, um, to stop running. So he says, all right, given all of this, given that we're to live by faith, given that our faith is to be in Jesus and he's trustworthy and has done all that we need him to do and is doing all that we need him to do and will do all that we need him to do, therefore he's trustworthy. And since everybody else who's gone before us has been commended, has lived by faith, therefore run. Don't stop. Don't drift. Don't be deceived. Continue to live by faith. No surprise that he's talking about this kind of endurance and this kind of perseverance. No surprise, because out of the lips of Jesus came these words, he says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. In other words, there isn't any salvation for those who don't persevere. It's a continuing on. It isn't just a decision that you make one point in your life to follow Jesus or get your religion or however you put that. He so says, this is life to you. This defines you. This you carry on through the whole course of your life. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. In fact, that's been the message of the author of Hebrews as well. For instance, in chapter 3, and in verse 6, he puts it like this. He says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast 
our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He says, you've got to hold fast to this. This isn't just something that you're playing around with. This isn't just a phase of your life. This is real. This is it. Hold fast to this. Don't stray from this. Don't drift from this. Don't be deceived so that you turn away from this. And then in verse 14, he puts it like this. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He says, how can you tell someone who really belongs to Christ? Well, they really, you can tell because they're holding fast. Because that's, that's who they are. They don't, they're not bouncing around. They hold fast to him. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Again, same exhortation. Hang on. Hold fast. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Therefore, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of, of disobedience. Um, and then, in verse 14, uh, Since then, uh, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, he says hold on. Hold on until the end. And then chapter 10, in verse 32, he puts it like this. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He's saying, listen, remember, you started really well. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. He says, remember back in those days when all your friends were being persecuted and many of them were being thrown in prison. You could have just turned aside at that point, but you didn't. You, you identified with them. And when you identified with them, they ransacked your house. They came against you. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you were living by faith. What did that mean? It meant you knew you had something better than what they were taking. You knew that you had something better in Christ than anything they could take from you. You knew that you had something better in Christ than your own safety, than your own stuff. And so you were living by faith. So then he goes on, verse 35, Therefore, don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence. Hang on to it. Don't drift from this. Keep living by faith. I added all that other stuff, you know. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So he's saying, listen, don't stop. Run. That's his word. Therefore, because of all that, run. Keep running. Don't stop. So the question this morning is, can we really do that? Can we really endure to the end? As those who've started the race, as those who've begun by faith, can you and I have the assurance that we're actually going to be able to run the race? That we're actually going to be able to fulfill this? That, that nothing is going to come in our way to cause us to drift away? That nothing's going to cause us to take away this confidence? That we'll continue to hold fast, to hold on to the end? That's the command to run. Can we do it? How do we know that? Well, two things, just in this one sentence, these two verses that the author of Hebrews gives us. One is the means by which we do that, and second, the motivation, or we could say the hope. 
the means by which we do that, and secondly, the motivation, the hope by which we're going to be able to do that. Notice the means by which we do this. Middle of verse 1, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. See, that's the means by which we do this. That's what we're doing as we're running. We're laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. It is all these things that keep us from running. You know, I I have to be honest with you. I don't really like metaphors that much. (laughs) You know, this is like that. Because you can so overdo it. You know, you can so overdo it. Like I could pretend, like I'm a great marathoner, and I could tell you all my experiences. But I don't think you'll buy that. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, you know what this means. You know what he's saying. You know that if you're going to run a long race, you want to be as skinny as you can possibly be. You want to be as lean as you can possibly be. And you want to make sure that you're wearing clothing that isn't going to trip you up. So if you look at people starting the Boston Marathon and the New York Marathon and all those marathons, in the very beginning of the race, at least, you see a bunch of skinny people dressed very scantily. Right? In fact, the ancient Greeks used to run naked. I would want to be a little bit more encumbered, but, you know, but for them, they, uh, they, that, that's how they ran. So that's, in Paul's mind, when you're running a marathon, you're stripped of everything. In fact, I was reading with Kenny this morning out of his Bible, which is the message, and he has a little expression in there saying, strip down. So that's, what, that, that's good. That's a good translation there. That's a good image, because that's what Paul has in mind, strip down. Take, it, take everything off you that's going to encumber you in this race because this race is all that's important so that anything that impedes your faith, anything that causes you to drift away, ah, get rid of it. It's just not helpful to you. I mean, it would be very odd at the beginning of the, 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 the Boston Marathon to see a little chubby guy like me standing ready to run right on the finish line with all these slender people from Kenya. You know, and here I am, and I have got I've got a big winter coat on, and I've got I've got you know boots on, and I've got a 50 pound pack with Twinkies and root beer to help me get through, and and you know you look at me and you go, Bill, lighten up, you know, um, you gotta you gotta get rid of some stuff. In fact, you don't have time to get rid of everything you need to get rid of before you start this race, but get rid of this if you're really going to be able to run this thing. And so that's what Paul's saying, and it makes sense to us when he says. Get rid of every sin. Because you see, there's sin that clings very closely to us. And the very desire of sin is always to trip us up. To, to make us fall. To get us even running in the opposite direction. That's, that's the very nature of sin. The scripture says that which isn't of faith is sin. So when we're not running believing in Christ and trusting him, then we're falling all over ourselves. That's the very nature of, 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 of what happened in the Garden of Eden. You see, the very guts of sin is unbelief. The very guts of sin is not taking God at His word. The very guts of sin is not trusting in His wisdom and His goodness and His authority. That He's really God. And so, when God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I mean, he wasn't puffing his chest and saying, I'm going to give you something not to do just because I can do it and you can't. He was simply saying, I can do this. I'm the one who defines good and evil, not you. Now, you can trust me or not. You can trust my wisdom that I know what is good and what is evil, and you can come to me for that information. 
And I'll, I'll help you understand that. You can trust my goodness that, that I, I'm good and, and that I'm not going to try to deceive you in any way, shape, or form. You trust in my authority that I'm God. I'm the one who gets to do this. And of course, they didn't take God as, at his word. They didn't trust him. And in not trusting him, they disobeyed. They offended him. They turned against him. They trusted, believed in the word of Satan. They trusted, believed in their own discretionary powers and and discernment and wisdom and all of that and overruled, at least in their own mind, God. But the beginning of that was unbelief. The beginning of that was when Satan said, did God really say? And so we see that unbelief is, is the very core, the very guts of sin. And so if we're going to run a race of faith, we need to get rid of, of sin. We need to get rid of that pride that says, I don't really need this that much. I mean, none of us would say, sitting here probably, none of us would say we don't need Jesus. But how much? Totally? Or is there just something we can do? Something we can add? Pride says, there's got to be a little something we can add. As soon as that pride comes in, as soon as we begin looking at ourselves and trusting in ourselves, then we begin to trip and we begin to fall. We love anger, for instance, because it makes us feel so good, at least for the moment, because what anger really generally expresses is that things aren't going my way, and they really should. And therefore, I'm going to lash out at all that that isn't going my way. And when we're there, we're very likely to be sinning because the point of life isn't that everything goes our way. The point of life is that everything goes God's way. He's the center of this, not us. You see, the great problem with sin, of course, the great danger of it, is it deceives. That's why in chapter 3, as the author of Hebrews is talking to them and exhorting them, he says, he says uh, make sure that none of you uh, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies. Sin says... I'm as satisfying as God is, or more so. If you only trust me, if you only cast your lot with me, you'll really be happy, you'll really be satisfied. And of course, the danger is that that's true for a while. Sin can feel really, really good. And it can satisfy. I mean, sometimes that anger that's expressed that is sinful to the core... It just feels good at the moment because sometimes that pride that puffs up and gets attention to ourselves feels really good for the moment. Sometimes that lust which we experience and and, and we play out in our own mind satisfies to a certain degree. Sometimes we tell that lie, it feels so good because we've got out of that, gotten out of that situation and now we feel free of of that circumstance uh, and, and we look good. Uh, sometimes gossip feels so good to say that which is damaging about another and we leave that situation and we go, ah. But that's just deception. Because that very sin will come in and just choke you to death. And it trips us up. And so we understand very clearly when the author of Hebrews says, lay aside every sin. That's why Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, says, take off the old self. And then more dramatically, when he writes to the church in Colossae, he says, put to death. He says, kill all this and put it to death. And the author of Hebrews sounds, since he's using a running metaphor, it's, it's kind of very, um, very calm. He says, simply lay it aside. You take it off. Kill it. 
Don't let it back on, is what he's saying. Leave it at the side and run away from it as fast as you can. Uh, because this sin will kill you. It'll hinder you. It'll keep you from running by faith. You say, well, how do I take it off? Well, first of all, you need to know that it's sin. You know, knowing what is sinful doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. Uh, in my experience, it's been... You ought to be a pastor for a while. Uh, It's it's interesting because I've sat with people struggling with various sins. I've sat with thieves who don't know stealing is wrong, even after they've come to faith. It's just an amazing thing. You go, that's wrong. That's why you wouldn't do that. And they go, really? It's just amazing. I mean, sin can be so deceptive. You need to read the scripture and find out what sin really is. In this culture today, I tell this to parents, I tell this to college students, I tell this to everybody. In this culture today, when a young person becomes a Christian, that young person doesn't automatically know that having sex is a sin outside of marriage. Because in our culture, it's so common. I've shared this with students before who are believers And they look at me like I'm crazy. They look at me like, really? That's really wrong. So we take out the scripture, I show it to them, we talk through it and why and all of that. At the end of the day, because the Spirit of God is in them, they go, okay, I see it. But, you see, there's all kinds of things like that. Some people who grow up in a hostile environment don't understand that losing their temper at everything is a sin. Some people who grew up in a critical environment... They don't know that complaining about everything is is a sin. I mean, it's just part of who they are. And so we need to go to the scripture and submit ourselves to it and say, oh, I see. And be convicted of that sin. So we need to go to the scripture and we need to see what sin really is. And then the laying aside of it is, is agreeing with God that that sin, confession means with the same profession, if you will. Con means with. So it's a confession. You're saying, yes, God, I agree with you. You're right. I'm wrong. That's really offensive to you. That's really sin. And so we lay it aside by first acknowledging it, by first confessing it, and then by repentance. And repentance, using our author's metaphor, is running from that sin as fast and as far as you can possibly get. Now, we know that's a process. We know that's a lifelong thing. In fact, the first of Martin Luther's 99 theses, which he tacked onto the door of Wittenberg, was simply this, that when Christ, our Master, calls us to follow him, it's a life of repentance. I mean, that's what it is. It's a constant understanding. I'm wrong, you're right. Oh, go away from that sin. So that's how we lay it aside. But there's something else here. And that something else here is he says, take off every weight. Now, certainly a sin is a weight that we need to take off of us. But this little word weight gives the impression that he's distinguishing perhaps other things that may not in and of themselves be sinful or sins, but simply things that keep us from running the race well. You see, the question of the Christian who's maturing isn't simply, is this wrong? But we need to turn from that question, we still need to ask it, but turn from that question and also ask the question, is this helpful? I mean, there's all kinds of things out there in and of themselves that aren't sinful. I mean, let's face it, watching TV in and of itself isn't a bad thing, necessarily. Or reading a novel 
or in a magazine or, or, or going to a movie or, or reading the newspaper or, 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 or being involved in some recreational thing or being involved in sports or being involved in a play or being involved in certain organizations or having certain friendships. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those kinds of things on their face. You don't look at that and say that reading the newspaper is a sin. But the question that a Christian must ask is, is it helpful in my race? Is it helpful? Does it really enable me to run well? A number of years ago, Karen and I, this is forever ago probably, uh, realized that, that there are a number of things in our own life that, that we just put under the heading of excess baggage. If I'd have been thinking more spiritually, I would have just called it a weight. You know, that would have really looked good from Hebrews. But, but we just call it excess baggage. Stuff we don't need. You know, and we could throw out stuff that if we do may not be a sin, but it really isn't all that helpful. In fact, we can see sometimes some ways where it actually hinders us. We, we looked at certain movies that we watched. I, I looked at certain movies that I watched and realized that perhaps it wasn't really a sin to watch that movie, but it wasn't really helpful to me. In fact, it may put ideas in my head. That, 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 that could dull my spiritual senses, dull my moral discernment. And so we began not to watch movies that took premarital and extramarital sex for granted. Because I just didn't want to be dulled in that way. I didn't want to, ten years down the road, be just like everybody else, thinking, well, you know, everybody's doing it. It's just the way our culture is. And not be shocked by it anymore. But if you take those movies out of your life for five years and you watch one, you'll be sick. So we just stopped watching those movies, generally speaking. Every once in a while, oh, we may watch one just because it was recommended by some good Christian friends. But, but we, we, uh, uh, we just, you know, put those out of our lives. And we never drank at all, but, but alcohol is another one of those things to think about. Alcohol, drinking alcohol isn't a sin. Here I go again, preaching against sinning and drinking. But uh, it's not a sin. But the question is, is it helpful? We looked in the context of our own lives and we said, you know, we could do this and it really wouldn't be all that bad, but it might damage our witness. It just wasn't worth it. It was just excess baggage. It didn't hurt us not to. We didn't see how it could help us too. So why? We just didn't seem to have any good reason to persist in that way. Certain books to read. Reading the newspaper can be a problem. If you find yourself reading the newspaper every morning before you go off to work or whatever starts your day and never reading the Bible during the course of the day, which is really more important. I mean, reading the newspaper is a good thing. I do it from time to time. But if you do that religiously and you don't want to read your Bible, could that be a problem? Maybe you could substitute one for the other. In fact, one day, you know what I did years ago when I was young and more nasty? I, I took... I took the. I was living in Denver at the time and I, I took the opening article on a Monday morning about the Denver Bronco game and I shrunk it down into the right size and the right print and the right type of my Bible, same columns. And I put it over the book of Colossians. And it was longer than the book of Colossians. And I asked how many people read that article in my Sunday school class. I was teaching a Sunday school class, about 200 people. And, and all the men and many of the women had read that article. I said, how many of you read Colossians this week? Or something in the Bible that long? Not as many hands went up. And I went, I think that's a problem. All right? There's nothing wrong with the Broncos. They need a running back. But they, um, uh, particularly, but, 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 you see my point. There are things which may not in and of themselves be sins, 
But we have to be mature enough to ask the question, is this helpful? Is this beneficial? Now, there are some even aspects about our own personalities that I think we have to be careful of. You know your personality type, probably. You can, you've been through the tests or, or, or you've talked about this, thought about this. You know if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You know if you're an optimist or a pessimist. You know if you're a thinking person or if you're an intuitive person. You know if you're judgmental or whatever the opposite is of that. Uh, uh, you know that... Uh, uh, you know, all these things about yourself. And there's some really good qualities in every personality type. But I know in my personality type, there are things that hinder me from the race. And I need to lay them aside. No matter how much a part of me they are. And it's really painful. And it's really hard. Because we really don't change personality types, I don't think, that much. But yet I know in me there are just some things that keep me from running the race well. And I need to be on myself all the time. And many times I fail. Many times I cop out to just saying, oh, that's just not me. I'm just not like that. But if I need to be like that to run the race, then I need to set aside that part of me that doesn't like to run that way. I mean, Paul writes to Timothy, a timid guy, great advantages to that in ministry. He was probably perceived as one who was humble. He probably stayed out of the background. Probably a guy who didn't care, who got the credit for stuff. That was all good. But Paul said, listen, Timothy, I want you to fan into flame the gift that you've been given. You get the impression that there are some aspects of his personality that were keeping him from getting out there and doing what God had called him to do. And in a gentle way, Paul was saying, leave it aside. Don't get trapped in your personality. And on the other hand, I think of Peter. You know, he was always the first one with a question or a comment. Always the first one out of the boat. He was always the first one to profess his loyalty to Jesus. Great advantages and that kind of assertiveness and that kind of aggressiveness. But of course, he was, always, he, was, he was also the first one to whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He was also the one who sunk in the water and he was also the one to deny Christ. And so that kind of impetuousness sometimes gets us into trouble as well. And I think the word to Peter would be, lay those things aside. And I think if you read his epistles, you'll find he did lay them aside. Just on what flows First and Second Peter. So that's true for us as well. We can never say, well, that just isn't me. I just can't do that. <sighs> Lay it aside. So how are we going to do that? I mean, what's going to be the hope that we have that we're going to be able to live this kind of life endured to the end if that's what it takes to be able to lay sin aside and be able to lay ourselves aside, really? Uh, I think first this, he says... Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. We need to realize that there's been a race that's been set before us. And God is the one who set it before us. Now, in one sense, he set the same race before all of us, a race of faith. 
I mean, the race isn't about accumulation. The race isn't about getting more wealth. The race isn't about getting more education. The, ref, well, uh, the, the, the race isn't about uh, high social standing. The race isn't about uh, getting more leisure time to relax. The race isn't about that kind of thing. The race is about faith. The race is about continuing on, believing in Jesus, trusting in him, living by faith through the course of your whole life. That's the race. That's the race for all of us. But we realize that our lives take different turns. And our lives uh, uh, reveal different circumstances. And each of us faces various kinds of things. And one of the things to bear in mind, and again, this is, this is one of those deep truths that I can only declare, I can't explain, only declare, we take in, we calm our hearts and go, yes, that's it. And that brings me comfort to know that each of us has a race to run and God sets it before us. There's so many things, even we have to admit beyond our control, the family in which you were born. You didn't have any control over that. There you are. Some were born in believing families, some not. Some were born in very healthy families, some in very dysfunctional families, some in all, you know, all kinds of families. So you find yourself starting out there. God set you on that course. That wasn't an accident. You're on that course. And there you go. And some opportunities present themselves to you, and others don't present themselves to you. And, and you have a certain personality type, probably, and some of you are athletic, and some of you are bright, and some of you are this, and some of you are that, and all of that. So that's the race set before you. And so given this body, and given this mind, and given this family, and given this town that I grew up in, and given all of that, that's the race that God has put me on. He said, now live that out by faith. And some will experience Tremendous ease of life for seasons of life and some great difficulties of life for seasons of life. And there's comfort to know, I think, that that isn't random. That God has set you on that track. And he's saying, now, here's what I want. Here's what your life is to be. Trust me on this one. Now you may say, I don't like that. What would you rather have? It'd be random. Do you want to make those kinds of decisions? Do you want your husband or your wife or your kids or your boss to make that decision for you? I mean, who else should set the course? Who else should set the track? Other than this one who is perfectly wise, this one who is all-powerful, this one who is good, and this one who loves you and has proven that love to you in the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the one who sets it. And so he says, listen, there's a race set for you to run by faith and God sets it. Be comforted by that and know that there is no trial, there is no temptation that comes to us, but such is common to man. But God will offer a way of escape in every circumstance, in every situation so that you can bear up under it. That means He'll help you. He'll make certain that you're able to run this race. So trust Him. And then He says this. Notice that there's a great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. I said, I want you to realize that. You're not the first one to run this race. There are other people who run this race ahead of you. And there are witnesses. Now, there's two ways a witness can witness. A witness can witness by seeing, that is, as a spectator. And a witness can witness by telling, that is, by telling what he or she has seen. Right? So if you're at a sporting event, you see it, you witness. If you are the witness of a scene at an accident, you tell what you saw. Now, what kind are these? I don't know. He doesn't say. Probably both, in some sense. I mean, we get... We don't have any idea that the people who've gone before us are watching us right now. 
In fact, I've often thought that when I get to heaven, I'm not looking back. You know, I mean, I can either look at the people on earth or I can look at God. I'm going to look at God. You know, I just, I just think that'll fascinate me way more, bless your hearts, than whatever you're going through. Okay? Now, because I know what this is like. Uh, and I'm excited to see what that is like. Uh, so we don't have any indication that they're watching in that sense. And this is just a metaphor anyway. I mean, it's, just, it's, 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 a, it's an image for us to, to get in our minds. So you get the sense that here are these witnesses around us, and they're cheering us on. And what they're cheering us with is to say, the promises of God are true. We've made it to the finish line. He satisfies. Don't go in any other direction. Don't take any other route. Don't believe anything else. Really trust Him. And it isn't they're saying, you can do this because we did. I don't think Gideon's up there clapping and cheering, going, hey, you can do this just like I did. I was so smart that I cut my army down from 32,000 men to 300. And that was really brilliant. I don't think he's going to say that. I don't think he's going to say, my 300 men were stronger than their army. I think he's what he's going to say is, listen, in my weakness, God showed himself to be strong. Do you feel weak right now? Gideon's just applauding and cheering. He's saying, trust me, God will come through for you. Trust me, God will help you. Trust me, God will fight your battle. If you've lost tons because of your walk with Christ, there's Moses cheering you on. He's saying, listen, the reproach of Christ is more wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Trust me, I know that's true. I ran it all the way through, and that's really true. I know it sounds crazy to think you'd give up being the prince of Egypt, but I did. And you know what? Belonging to God and walking with Him is more valuable than any of that. Trust me. You see Abraham cheering us along the sidelines, going, listen, I was asked to leave my country, and I didn't know where I was going to go. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like God's taking you someplace new that you don't know where you're going? That's true for all of us, by the way. When we get saved, we don't have a clue, really, what that looks like on the other end. And we're walking that out. And we're just like Abraham, and he's cheering us along the sides. He's saying, yes, you can do this. And then there's David. And David's saying, listen, I sinned grievously. But God restored me. And I made it to the end. Trust me. Don't sin as I did. But if you do, God will help you. God will forgive you. God will restore you. Keep running. See, that's the nature of these witnesses. They've been there. And then, of course, he says this to us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saying, listen, look to Jesus, because he's the, the, the founder or the author or the source of our faith. And he's the perfecter of our faith. If this is a run, a race of faith, where else should you go? But the very one who's the source of faith. The very one who brings faith to us. See, it's very dangerous for us in our lives to think that God does everything and we supply the faith. The truth of the matter is, God does everything. Even giving us the faith in which we're to believe. May we rely upon Him for everything. In fact, the very evidence of faith, when faith appears, 
uh, that's the evidence that we get it, that we see it, that God has really worked in our lives. You remember that man who had a son who was mute, and he came to Jesus for healing, and he said, I believe, and then he followed that by saying, help my unbelief. He was doing exactly the right thing. He was going exactly the right guy. He's saying, you know, on the one hand, I know you can heal my son, and I know you can help me believe. And so he went to Jesus and said, help me believe. So in the course of this race, we need to go to the source of faith. We need to go to the very one who gives faith, the very one who's the source, the founder, the author of it, and, and go to him and say, my faith is weak right now. I'm running, but I'm slow and I'm hindered because my faith seems weak. Please give me faith. Help me. I look to him for that. And he's the perfecter of faith. Meaning he brings it to perfection. He brings it all the way to the finish line. He takes it all the way to where it needs to go because he's the perfecter of our faith. And then he's the example of our faith because he lived perfect, perfectly by faith. The author of Hebrews could have said, look to the Lord. He could have said, look to Christ. He could have said, look to Christ the Lord, but he didn't. He said, look to Jesus. Well, they're all the same guy. But when he says, look to Jesus, he's saying, look to this Man, Jesus. He's emphasizing the humanity of Christ at that point when he says, Jesus. He says, look at him. He lived by faith. He says, I can't do anything without the Father. I don't do anything I don't see the Father see. I don't say anything I haven't heard the Father say. I can't do anything without him. Scripture even tells us that when he went to the cross, he trusted that his Father wouldn't abandon him to the grave. So he's the model of our faith. And he finished the course. And we can look at these ones in the Old Testament like Abraham and Moses and the other and go, they finished the course and at times their life was very difficult. We look at Jesus and we realize he finished the course and his life was hell at the very end. And he finished. And he's saying, listen, follow me. And so you see, whatever... The course is that God has laid out for us. Wherever we are on that course, we're to live it by faith. To do that, we need to lay aside everything that hinders us. We need to lay aside our sin. We need to lay aside all those things which are unhelpful for us so that we can run this race. And we do it always realizing that God has set that course Realizing that there's a great cloud of witnesses around us who have gone before us. And we do that looking unto Jesus. Who's the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross scorning its shame. And now is seated in glory. They think about the joy of Jesus. Certainly it was the fact that he knew that in his death that he would bring many sons to glory. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2. But he also knew that he'd be reunited with his Father in glory. And that's where we'll be at the finish line. You see, at the finish line of this race, we'll be glorified. We'll be with God in glory. And at that point in time, we'll look back and say, whatever happened here was worth it. Because God is faithful. His promises are true. And he really does satisfy. And so we looked to Jesus. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, we know, and he 
broke it and gave thanks and he gave this to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And what we need to remember is that he is the author and finisher of faith. He came that we might have life. And to give us life, he had to die. And he rose again. He sent his spirit to give us life. The evidence of that life is our faith. And now he says, run. Keep running. Don't ever stop. Keep running by faith, trusting in Him. Let's pray, Father. I pray even now that you take this bread and this juice and set it apart in some way, very special way that enables us to look to Jesus, to realize that He's the very source of our faith. He's the very perfecter of our faith. As we run looking to Him, as we run in Him, we'll get to that finish line. And at that point, if not before, we'll know for certain that it is worth it, that you do satisfy. I pray for me, for us, as we run this race, that you would grant us the grace to trust you through it all. And so even now I pray that as we share this meal together, that you will increase our faith in Jesus, that our focus would be upon him. And at this moment, that we would know that all your promises are true in him, and that you and nothing else satisfies that we can trust in you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is the table of the Lord. It's not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. He invites to it all those who run in the race, all those who trust in Jesus, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who believe in the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel that is freely Savior of sinners. And all those who desire to live as is true of one who is a follower of Christ, that is, who's running the race. So I invite you to come, these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, think this. Looking unto Jesus, I'll finish the race. Please come. <clears throat> to our benediction, is to sing together the doxology, that uh, great hymn of praise to God. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, and be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom